This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the National Vetting Center was created nearly four years ago to streamline the process of vetting some people coming into the U.S. The director of the center explains how the agency sorts through massive amounts of data and protects civil liberties. Then, the U.S. and Pakistan have long had a tumultuous relationship. Now it appears to be improving. The country's former ambassador to the U.S. shares what each could do to better work together. And the U.S. government has banned Chinese communication technology deemed a serious threat to national security. We'll discuss the impact the new rule will actually have. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Within the Department of Homeland Security is the National Vetting Center. It's a relatively new agency created in 2018. Monty Hawkins is the director of the center. Monty, welcome to the program. Thanks, you. Thanks for having me. Why was the agency created? What's the core mission here? Sure, uh, so the National Vetting Center was created in uh, 2018 uh, to help adjudicating agencies. So those agencies such as State Department, uh, Customs and Border Protection, um, who are looking at travelers and uh, applicants to the country, uh, get better access to classified information to support those uh, vetting of those travelers and applicants. And you essentially had to create the infrastructure to sift through all that data. We How did. did you do that? Uh, it was a great uh, effort within uh, all of DHS, actually. We partnered with other parts of the agency um, to come together and bring a new technical design to this whole um, enterprise uh, and better connect with our intelligence community and law enforcement partners to get access to that data, uh, which is difficult to, to um, make connections to and bring that to the unclassified side so adjudicators have better and quicker access to that information. So let's talk about the specifics of, of how you do what you do. What types of individuals are you screening at this point? Sure. Uh, right now we are mostly focused on those applying for immigration benefits or travel to the United States. So think of uh, applying for a non-immigrant visa with State Department, uh, refugees with USCIS within the Department of Homeland Security, um, or people on visa waiver travel uh, through CBP. So those are the folks that we are primarily focused on now, um, but we are bringing on new programs each year. But shouldn't everybody that's trying to come into the United States be vetted properly? Uh, they should, and most of them do get vetted against classified information. What the NBC brings to the table is a, a quicker and better way to get access to that information. So we allow the adjudicators a, uh, a better way. Um, so I've, I've used this example before of something like Orbitz or Travelocity that people have used for um, looking at flights. Um, you don't go to each individual website looking for those flights. You get it all together in an aggregator, a results aggregator. Um, that's one of the key things that NBC brings to this process is a single one-stop shop for those classified results. Um, and it allows a, just a better, more thorough process. And about how many people are screened daily through your system? Well, for instance, on the visa waiver program, there are about 40,000 applicants every single day. Um, so that's just one individual program. Uh, visa applicants, it's probably about 20 to 30,000 a day. So it varies, but in total, we are doing several million every, every month and uh, during the year. And how long does the vetting process take? Well, when our um, uh, system is working uh, smoothly, probably about uh, four to five minutes um, for that full classified automated check. 
Um, and so that goes against many of our intelligence community partners, and we give back kind of a, a red light, green light process, uh, but typically about four or five minutes within some human review after that process. So that might take a day or two, um, but the machines are working very quickly. And, and that process, you, you, you alluded to it, there's a, an automated piece. Yes. And then there's a human uh, review process. Correct, correct, yes. So the automated piece helps um, adjudicators kind of focus in on those who might need a little more attention. So it clears out most of the innocent travelers. Over 99% of people aren't gonna be of concern. Uh, the automated check helps us focus on those that might need that extra little look, and those humans then take a look at those over the next day or two uh, to determine whether there's something there to actually be of concern. And as far as who your customers are, mm -hmm. right, obviously you're within DHS, but you work with so many other agencies. Talk about that. Correct, yeah, we are a, a bit unique in that when we were created in 2018, um, we were administratively housed within CBP, um, but what we were tasked to build through that presidential memo was an agency agnostic process. And so we are designed to build or to support um, any agency across the federal government that's doing vetting of travelers or applicants. So um, TSA, CBP, ICE, um, State Department, uh, so we have a multitude of different customers and we're hoping to add more over time. There's a lot of criticism about, you know, the people coming over the southern border illegally. Mm -hmm. Are you doing anything in that area? So they're doing plenty of vetting on those, on those folks today. The NBC itself is not involved in that yet, um, but it is on a list of programs that we are um, going to uh, tackle hopefully in this, next, in this coming year. When the center was created, there was a lot of concerns about civil liberties, about mm -hmm. privacy. You know, yes. whenever you talk about yeah. vetting or, you know, people's backgrounds, that becomes a very touchy subject. How do you address that? Sure. So we actually have uh, in our small staff two dedicated privacy officers who are looking at all of our programs to, to ensure that we are abiding by DHS privacy principles. Uh, we also have a dedicated privacy and civil rights civil liberties working group uh, with representation from across our interagency partners. Um, and then we, we correlate or we uh, work all these projects with them to ensure that um, there aren't any concerns from that respect. Um, and then it goes up to our governance board to make sure that they are agreeing to what we do. So there are privacy protections built in from day one of our process. And, you know, the center's been around since 2018, so about four years mm -hmm. now. How has it changed? How has it evolved since then? Um, so I think it's of, um, it's been nice to see it be implemented and, and come to fruition how we all envisioned it four or five years ago. So um, it's evolved in that it's become almost the uh, de facto way that um, the government now looks at doing classified vetting. We become kind of the automatic option for when a new program wants to get classified support. Um, so it's, it's nice that we've kind of filled that niche and people have realized that we provide a very good service for them. Um, and so for us now, which is maintaining um, those programs that we currently support, adding more and ensuring that we have pro we're properly staffed and funded to do that growth over time. That's what I was going to ask you about adding more. What's yeah. next? What's coming next for you? Uh, so uh, this year we have a couple of programs we're looking at with uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, doing more with State Department as well. Um, but one of our, our key mandates is kind of moving beyond counterterrorism, uh, which is a big thing for us. So historically, uh, much of this classified vetting was focused on the counterterrorism threat. Because it was post 9-11, it made sense to look at counterterrorism issues. Um, but what we were driving our vetting agencies to do was look at more threats beyond counterterrorism, such as counterintelligence, transnational organized crime, counterproliferation. And so not only adding new programs, but expanding the, the depth of the support that we get from our vetting support agencies. All right. Well, when you do expand, uh, come back and let us know how things go. We will. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming next, Pakistan's former ambassador to the U.S. joins us to discuss what the future of the two countries could look like more than a year after the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Stay with us.
After years of disengagement, ties between the U.S. and Pakistan are warming. But what the future of relations look like is still unknown. Hussein Haqqani is director of South and Central Asia at the Hudson Institute, formerly Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to the program. Pleasure being here, Mimi. American forces are no longer in Afghanistan. What is Pakistan's strategic importance to the U.S. now? With the departure of the American forces from Afghanistan, the U.S. no longer depends on Pakistan for logistical support for those forces. But Pakistan remains intrinsically important. Uh, it is one of seven countries in the world that have demonstrated nuclear weapons capability. It sits at the crossroads of the Middle East, Central Asia, and South Asia. It borders China, India, and Iran, all countries important to the United States, uh, either as adversaries, rivals, or allies. And lastly, it has the 10th largest army in the world. It also has one of the fastest growing populations, and it is a country where radical Islamism has found uh, support and root for years. You must remember Osama bin Laden was found there. So the country remains important for all those reasons, if not as the logistical support base for American forces in Afghanistan. Well, you mentioned Islamic radicalism. A common criticism is that Pakistan hasn't done enough to curb terrorism. Will that change? I mean, could, could we see even less cooperation from Pakistan? Uh, Pakistan, of course, has always been uh, uh, conflicted on this subject. Uh, Pakistan supported uh, jihadi radicals as a way of uh, equalizing power with India, which it considers a rival. Uh, and the rest of the world, of course, wants Pakistan to end all support for Islamist radicals. And Pakistan's reluctance to do that has been a major impediment to close US-Pakistan ties. I don't see a major change in Pakistan's attitude except at the margins. And as a result, I do see that this issue will continue to be a problem between the US and Pakistan, as well as other countries in Pakistan. Pakistan's answer to all criticism is we've done a lot, but we cannot completely eliminate support for a particular point of view in our country. And secondly, since the rest of the world does not help us in dealing with what we consider to be the Indian threat, we have no choice but to let these people uh, take, uh, take up arms and at least equalize the power difference that exists between Pakistan and India at, at, in a conventional capacity cap uh, and capability. And what do you see as the drawbacks to the U.S. of disengaging with Pakistan? Pakistan does not want to disengage, so it is not in the, in the advantage of the United States to uh, pass up the opportunity to engage with a country that wants to engage with it, even if it is a conditional engagement. The U.S. can have conditional engagement with Pakistan. Not having an engagement means the U.S. has no visibility on what Pakistan is doing with its nuclear weapons program. The U.S. has limited intelligence capability in pursuing jihadi terrorists, both in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And also, uh, the U.S. loses the potential for deploying Pakistani forces in third countries, which is a possibility if Pakistan and the United States can work things out between themselves. And what is Pakistan's relationship with China now? And, and how has that been evolving? 
Pakistan has been close to China for years, and as relations between Pakistan and the United States have become strained, uh, China has become the major supporter of Pakistan in the regional context. Now, Pakistan and China have one thing in common. Both of them have a negative view of India, and uh, uh, that has been the reason why China has built up Pakistan's capabilities. There, there are uh, rumors to the effect that Pakistan's nuclear and missile capacity capability depended heavily on Chinese support, and Pakistan's military still gets a lot of support from China. The problem is the Pakistani elite wants close ties with the West. Uh, it does not want completely to be dependent on China. And while the US has to be wary of Pakistan's dependence on China and close ties to China, it is not in America's interest to uh, leave the arena completely and end up making a country that has a pro-Western elite to end up a, be a bit like North Korea totally dependent on China with no significant relations with others. So the American uh, engagement with Pakistan has to be both conditional and at the same time based on realities of Pakistan's attitude, which is often shaped by a single-minded negativity towards India. Well, speaking of India, uh, they obviously have a very contentious relationship. Um, how does the U.S. engage with both countries without upsetting the other one? Uh, it's difficult to do that, but the fact remains that India is now America's major partner. Uh, there is a, a much bigger trade relationship between India and the U.S., uh, India is, has been consistently a democracy. Pakistan has not. Uh, India supports a lot of American foreign policy objectives. Pakistan does not. So in a way, the choice has already made made. Pakistan has chosen China. India has chosen the United States. As a result, it's natural for the U.S. to prefer India over Pakistan. But there is another dynamic here. Pakistan has suffered a lot with its endless competition with India. It just can't compete with India anymore. The size difference, the difference between the economies, uh, the difference between the rates of growth uh, is just insurmountable for Pakistan. It would be in Pakistan's interest to negotiate a settlement with India that allows it to become a normal country instead of a jihadi, radical, infested country that is only half a democracy, that doesn't send a large number of its school-going age children to school, that has a poor literacy rate, and that does not invest in human capital, and its economy remains dependent on loans uh, and, and constant borrowing, borrowing from Paul to pay Peter, and that is not the way forward for the country. All right, so, Ambassador, thanks so much. We'll have to leave it at that. Thank you very much. Coming up on Government Matters, the FCC has announced a ban on Chinese telecom equipment that poses a risk to national security. But does the new rule go far enough? Stay with us. The FCC has just prohibited Chinese telecom and video surveillance equipment that poses a risk to national security from being authorized for sale or importation into the United States. Jack Horgan is a research analyst at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Jack, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. It's great to be here. So what are the national security risks? What, what's the worst that can happen? Sure. Um, so you can kind of think of these risks as falling into two buckets. Um, so the first bucket, and, and the one that gets talked about the most, has to do with uh, cybersecurity. So the risk here is that um, the Chinese government and Chinese private sector are very closely intertwined. 
Um, and under law, uh, Chinese companies are required to assist intelligence agencies with their mission. Um, so from the US perspective, the risk is that um, Chinese government could use this equipment as conduits into US networks to conduct espionage, hacking, all kinds of other nefarious activities. The idea being that um, once they gain access to this equipment, they can use that to springboard into other parts of the network. Um, a recent FBI investigation, for instance, found that uh, Huawei equipment deployed on cell phone towers near US military bases could potentially be used to intercept or even disrupt really sensitive military communications, included those related to nuclear command and control. Obviously, it's an extreme example, but it kind of highlights the risk. But very scary. But very scary, very scary. And then the other bucket is um, more kind of economic focused. So some of these companies are, are very dominant in their markets. Um, Hike Vision and Dawa, two of the companies that were just uh, in the FCC ban, are the largest producers of video surveillance equipment in the world. Um, so from the US perspective, banning this equipment kind of creates a market where more trustworthy companies could sell their technologies, um, hopefully use that to uh, gain market share, gain customers, and become more globally competitive. So there's certain equipment that the band covers. What about the components? I mean, what about the microelectronics that sure. go into the equipment? So uh, the FCC is still trying to figure out what to do with the components. My understanding is that um, this, this kind of covers final products. And um, they are still kind of seeking out comment on, on how to handle some of the components in this equipment. And this applies to future authorizations, future Correct. sales. So what about the stuff that's already out there? Yeah, so that's a, a great point. Um, so there's a lot of equipment on the market from these companies that has already received FCC authorization. And um, that equipment is still available, still can be legally bought and sold. Um, so, and it still presents the same kinds of risks. So if we want to address those risks, additional action from the government will be needed. Could this equipment have simply been regulated instead of an outright ban? Would that have worked? So, potentially. Um, the technology supply chain related to some of this equipment is very complex. Um, so gaining transparency into that has been like a, a very big issue in the last few years. So. Um, reg regulating it and figuring out where it could potentially be used safely and where it could potentially present risks um, is, is one way to, to move forward, but I think a, an outright ban might be a bit more effective in making sure that this equipment doesn't enter the market in the first place because, again, it, it really depends on where it's being deployed it, and, you know, you, if, depending on where it's deployed, it could present some, some real risks and, again, it could be used to jump from maybe one part of the network where it could be regulated in a safe way to another part of the market where, or another part of the network where it could present some real Wh risks. Which brings up the, the question of implementation and how yes. difficult this will be in implementing. Yes, um, so the implementation part of this has been uh, pretty challenging. So since 2019, federal agencies, for instance, have been um, prohibited from, from buying this equipment. So uh, this equipment is on, on paper already out of the equation at the federal level. Um, implementing this rule, this Section 889 rule, which banned this equipment, it has proven to be a challenge. So implementing it across the entire U.S. network, again, given some of the supply chain transparency issues that, that I talked about before, um, could be a real issue. Um, yeah. And this is the latest in a series of steps trying to address the same issue. I mean, right. how effective has this been and will this really make an impact? So I think that even if it is implemented effectively, we won't see the impact for at least a few years. Um, 
as I mentioned, as you pointed out, uh, this only applies to future equipment. So there's going to be a lot of equipment from these companies still in the market, still in circulation. Um, and that will eventually get phased out. And there are things that the government could do to, to expedite that process. Um, but until then, we are still going to be seeing like a lot of risks from, from these companies. And I think that um, kind of more broadly, um, even a few years down the line, this rule will only really have its intended effect if more affordable and trustworthy alternatives are made available on the market. Um, and you say affordable yeah. because this will have an impact on consumers. Chinese stuff is, is just cheaper. Yes, and that's one of the big appeals of this technology is it's very, very cheap. So like hike vision cameras, for instance, are often less than half the price of similar equipment manufactured in Japan, South Korea, US allied countries. Um, so if, if there are not those affordable, trustworthy options available on the market, you could see consumers, whether they be state and local governments, private companies, individuals, shifting from this equipment to other equipment manufactured by Chinese companies that aren't included in this ban, um, and, but still present the same risks. So that, that wouldn't necessarily be much better than the situation where we find You know, ourselves. the FCC commissioner has also said that they want to ban TikTok. Yes. Do you agree with that? Um, I, that is a bit outside of my wheelhouse, so I, I can't, I can't really comment on the TikTok stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, Jack, thanks so much for coming on the program. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too, Mimi. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. You can find a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on our homepage. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites, and these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.